The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The material that we began to um, reflect on last time is um, fairly important, um, and I know that it involves trying to get a handle on concepts that um, are, are difficult to grasp for a variety of reasons. Uh, you, you're really abstracting uh, a certain amount of um, theoretical work and trying to make it um, understandable with regard to very concrete questions. What I want to do is to go over this material again now, to uh, go over briefly uh, Hort's um, uh, method, and then we will still go over it again, but uh, looking at it more specifically with reference to uh, the method that I want you to use as you work on your paper. Now, um, I will be giving you a sample paper tomorrow on uh, some of the work that we're going to be uh, reflecting on even today. <clears throat> and um, what will happen, I hope, is that after going over the same material in a couple of different perspectives, uh, you will at least be able to follow the, the approach in your own paper, which I will tell you more about today and tomorrow. And it is a, a much more useful way of testing your understanding of these things. Uh, for the final exam, there will be a section on textual criticism. Uh, and again, you can look at the copy uh, that we have in the, uh, in the library. But uh, there are some things about uh, the, the whole theoretical and the methodological approach that um, uh, I can much better evaluate if I see you trying to do it yourself. And that's the primary purpose of, uh, of the paper. It is not really a research paper as such, and I don't want you to be spending um, you know, hours and hours looking through commentaries and so on and so forth. That's not really the purpose here, but simply to, um, to show me that you have grasped the basic uh, principles behind some of this work. But anyway, to um, simply go over briefly, um, once again, the, uh, the method that you have the outline of there on page uh, 10 of the lecture notes. Remember that for, um, for Hort, who was proceeding in a manner analogous to his own scientific training in botany and so on, he identified three basic steps <coughs> which are progressive in nature, both in the sense that uh, they build on each other, the second builds in the first and the third builds in the second, if you will, but also progressive in the sense that the first uh, is only partly satisfactory, the second uh, broadens your base and strengthens your argumentation, but still you need a third step to, to round out the whole picture. Not even after you have gone through all three steps, Horde was not such a fool as to think that you have now uh, an airtight argument. Uh, that's just not the nature of the beast in this sort of thing. But uh, he's trying to provide uh, as much uh, evidence that that is cogent and on the basis of which you can make an intelligent decision about uh, textual uh, problems among the manuscripts. So first of all, internal evidence of readings, where you're taking a problem at a time. So again, to think of Romans 
uh, all you do is look at Romans 5.1. And then you have these two uh, perspectives within that uh, step, namely intrinsic probability and transcriptional probability. Intrinsic probability asks the question, what is the author most likely to have written here? The indicative or the subjunctive we have or let us have. And you examine the context and you think about Paul's theology and about his writing style and, and any of these kinds of exegetical questions, you see, to come to some kind of preliminary conclusion as to what seems the most probable um, of, of the two possibilities in, in, uh, in front of you. Transcriptional probability looks at it not from the author's perspective, but from the perspective of the later scribes. What are the kinds of things that they used to do? What are the kinds of, of mistakes they used to make or tendencies they had? And uh, this is where you go to, uh, you know, Metzger, one of the latter chapters, gives you a discussion of the various, of the, of the different causes of errors uh, among the manuscripts that the scribes used to um, commit. And uh, you start asking questions like, you know, well, what is likely to have happened here? Maybe there was a repetition of a word and, and the scribe missed one of them. Or uh, maybe there was an error of hearing, uh, two words that sound alike, and he got them mixed up. Or um, he, the, the scribe may have thought that this wasn't clear, and uh, he thought that some other option would make better sense or whatever. So, so there are all these questions that you begin to look at to see if any of them may give you a clue as to what may have caused the introduction of a variant reading. And remember that the, the principal criterion there is, uh, can you explain the origin? Uh, which, which of the two readings best explains the origin of the other reading? And uh, questions like the more difficult reading or the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the shorter reading, and that sort of thing is what you want to keep in mind. Yeah. Whose cultural significance? That's intrinsic, yeah. I think so. Yeah, sure. What you know, if if, if maybe what you're thinking is that Paul is writing to the Corinthians, let's say, and uh, it is uh, very reasonable to ask the question, which is the um, uh, which is the variant that uh, would would have made the most sense to the people at the time, something like that. But like everything else, you know, that that's just a rule of thumb, because there are times when Paul does write things that are that are difficult, that might not make a lot of immediate sense to the to the readers. But um, as Hort pointed out, this is just the most rudimentary level. Intrinsic probability is the most rudimentary thing. Internal, uh, sorry, internal evidence of readings is the most rudimentary uh, process because you're taking the readings in isolation from each other. It's kind of, it's an atomistic approach, uh, you might say. And uh, therefore, you need to go a step further. And uh, this is what takes you to internal evidence of documents, internal evidence of documents, where you're looking not at one reading at a time, but you're rather trying to make an evaluation of a whole document at a time. You want to be able to evaluate a reading, a particular variant, within the framework of the witnesses in which that variant is found. So if, if a variant, which may seem like a good one when you look just, as, just at each variant at a time, you know, the internal evidence of readings, and uh, maybe this particular one looks very good to you, but then you find that it is only found in the, in the inferior manuscripts, then that should have you know, some weight. But how do you determine which documents are inferior or superior? 
Um, and you know, you have some of these uh, considerations of the age of the manuscript and whether the scribe seems to have been good and so on, but you need something more than that. And uh, the way that uh, Hort went about evaluating the manuscripts is by taking samples of variants, you know, various passages, where the decision was fairly easy to begin with just by using the internal evidence of readings, and then seeing which manuscripts uh, supported which reading. And that allowed him to make a, a general determination of the relative value of these manuscripts. And uh, again, that's no absolute uh, 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 proof. There are some people who think it is worthless because it is circular. They will say, well, this is just circular argument. You're using internal evidence of readings, then trying to determine which are the uh, better manuscripts on the basis of what you've done here. And then now you start using these documents to help you with the readings back there. Well, as long as you remember that there's no scientific progress in any field that does not involve a measure of circular argument, uh, then that's okay. But if you, if you think that it is circular in the sense that it's a vicious circle here, not at all. Uh, what you're doing is you're, you're making a preliminary um, determination, moving to another level, see if things begin to cohere. Then you go back. It's more like a spiral thing. You're trying to, to make progress within the limitations of, of our humanity, which is rather ignorant. Yeah. No, there's no evaluation number as such. Uh, I was just trying to, to give you some idea of how he went about uh, making this kind of relative. Uh, and, and then the answer to your question is uh, to appreciate that in the course of the years, as people have looked at the manuscripts more and more and used them, there is something of a consensus, you see, about which manuscripts generally uh, are the more reliable. And these would be Codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus and, and so on. And I'll give you some examples as we move along. But in a sense, already when you read the chapter in, in Metzger where he talks about the manuscripts, even though he doesn't rate them by number because that would give it a more uh, mathematical or scientific uh, uh, you know, impression than, than you really have there, at least you get a sense for what uh, scholars have uh, concluded about them. Yeah. It carries weight, but uh, that's all you can say. Because for all you know, uh, you, may, you may have very old manuscript back to the third century, but the person who wrote this manuscript was an idiot, you know. Or maybe it was a child doing uh, exercises. Uh, or maybe he was a great scribe, but the copy that he had to work with was a disaster. So you see, there are some of these external features like age or quality and so on. But what you're really after is the quality of the text. And to determine the quality of the text, you have to do some of this broad sampling uh, to see if there are patterns, that kind of thing. But even after having done that for individual manuscripts, uh, you still have to go a step further and ask questions about whether these manuscripts seem to have any kind of relationship one to another. And um, again, you see people who had already, even though they didn't follow Hort's uh, very uh, scientifically uh, informed approach, uh, people earlier than Hort had already identified certain kinds of connections. When Bengal grouped the manuscripts into two families, the Eastern and the Western family. Then when Griesbach came and identified, well, there's like an Alexandria and the Western and so on. And now uh, Hort refines that kind of uh, treatment and um, he comes up with a scheme, a, a, uh, a plan, a, um, again, this is speculative, but it is a way of trying to picture, if you will, what uh, are the connections, what are the possible connections among the manuscripts? Now, in um, Metzger's uh, book, uh, you have um, a chart 
on page 134 that uh, you will want to look at and reflect on. Um, you don't have to memorize this thing, but at least feel, try to feel comfortable with it. Make sure that you uh, realize what's going on. In this particular chart, which as I say is um, speculative, I mean, we do not know for certain about these things, but it is a, there's a similarity between making these kinds of connections, and remember when we're talking about language families and the possible organic connections between the Semitic languages here and the, Euro and the European and so on, how do we know these things? Well, we have no direct historical evidence for almost any of that, but nobody denies, for example, that English and uh, German are closely related, that German and English, on the other hand, are related to Spanish and French a little further back in the line. Why? Because you can see certain kinds of patterns that are explainable on the basis of some kind of organic uh, connection somewhere along the line. And um, uh, that's, there's a similarity between that and, and what the Hort and others have done in this regard, so that you have uh, an autograph, that is, you have the original manuscript somewhere in there. And then he sees a, a basic twofold division. Uh, on the one hand, you have what he calls the Western text, again, following uh, ideas that had been around for, uh, for a couple of centuries. And uh, under Western, he puts uh, specifically Codex D or Codex Bizi, which is the, uh, the primary uh, witness to that kind of a text, then the Old Latin, the Syriac, etc. On the other side, you have another stream which splits into two, the so-called Neutral and the Alexandrian. The Alexandrian is made up of um, manuscripts like C, which is, which is Codex Ephraimi, L, Manuscript 33, that Queen of the Cursives, and uh, the uh, Coptic translations. And then the neutral uh, is um, a, a family term, very, very unprejudiced term, as you can see. Um, and he puts Codex Vaticanus and Codex uh, Sinaiticus in that particular family. The point is that the more Hort worked with the material, the more he uh, became impressed with the very large, proportionately large number of cases where these two manuscripts agreed over against other families and, their partic and the particular reading that these manuscripts had in common uh, seem consistently good readings. Now, there's a subjective element there, undoubtedly, but uh, that was his um, uh, explanation. And then he believed <coughs> that somewhere in the fourth century, because there were um, different types of texts floating around, that it was necessary in the early church particularly after the uh, Byzantine Empire uh, you know, made Christianity the official religion and so on, to it was necessary to standardize the text. And so there was a revision, if you will, of the Greek New Testament, which was in effect a merging of these families into what came to be known, well, what Hort called the Syrian text, because he believed that that's where it was um, produced. Later came to, to be known as the Byzantine text or the traditional text and so on. And it is that text which is basically uh, the text you have in the Texas Receptus which Erasmus um, produced. Why? Because Erasmus made use of some late manuscripts that were representatives of that uniformed or standard uh, text. Now, Hort's theories created a great deal of um, controversy, discussion, 
Not because they were, were so new or innovative. As I have said before, what he was doing to a large extent was crystallizing uh, stuff that had been going on for quite a while. But what happened, you see, is that on the basis of their work, they did produce a Greek New Testament, which became very popular, the Westcott and Hort text of uh, 1881. And uh, it was so popular that people were now faced with, you know, hey, wait a minute here. Here's this Greek text, and, and there are so many differences from the Textus Receptus, which is what most people had still been using. Titiandorf's text was very highly regarded among scholars, but it had not kind of filtered down. What really made the situation uh, more provocative, if you will, is that the Westcott and Hort text uh, was very influential in the revision of the King James Version, what came to be known as the Revised Version. That was the English, that was the British edition in the, um, um, in the United States, came to be known as the American Standard Version. This was a project that was completed in, in the uh, 1880s and which adopted many of the readings which you find in Westcott and Hort's text. So you see now when you have not only a popular, relatively popular Greek text available uh, for people, but even an English, a respectable you know, uh, a translation approved by many higher-ups and so on, uh, now people are being faced with this especially when you come across a passage like you know, the woman taken in adultery or the end of chapter 16 of Mark. Uh, both those two passages are the main passages where you have a rather large chunk. And now the questions are being raised, maybe this was not part of the original text. And then there were lots of other minor uh, differences as well. In spite of that, Hort's theories won the day. Um, and if you go to the next um, page, page 11, I want to uh, talk about what's been happening in this century. And uh, the main thing uh, that I'm interested in is the major developments that have taken place in the scholarly world with regard to these theories. And uh, you notice there, uh, first item under that, scholarly response to Westcott and Hort. You see, Part of what was going on is that um, Tischendorf's text, for example, which was recognized as a very significant uh, development, uh, was used by specialists and was recognized as important in many respects. But uh, there were still a lot of people out there who were very hesitant to actually make the change, if you will. And um, when Hort's work was published, there were a number of scholars, not only uh, you know, some of the popular people, who, popular uh, groups that perhaps were not very familiar with what was going on, and they would, they would simply resist because they didn't really understand. But even among some scholars, uh, there were questions raised about what Hort was doing and about the extent of his uh, revisions and so on. Nevertheless, Hort's views, as I said, won the day. And why? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons why um, uh, scholars finally came to accept um, basically the, um, well, let's say the basic reliability of uh, Hort's uh, work. For example, one of the individuals who opposed Hort uh, was a man uh, known as Dean Burton, uh, Bergen, John Bergen. Another important name among opponents of the Hort text was that of Scribner. Now, these two individuals are often mentioned together, as I have just done. But I think it's important to appreciate that there were some uh, very, very important differences between the two of them. Dean Bergen, uh, you know, he was a brilliant man, no question about it, but uh, he also was very idiosyncratic in his approach, could be quite acerbic, 
and um, argued his case in such a way that he put off a lot of people. And uh, while some of his arguments were very important and needed to be taken uh, um, seriously, his mode of argumentation at other times was very weak, and his evidence was very ambiguous or whatever. Scribner is a different uh, character altogether. Uh, he was really a, a marvelous um, a scholar. He was really a pastor and did this on the side. But uh, his work was uh, very, very sober. And he had misgivings about Hort's work. In particular, he felt that, you see, Hort pretty much gave the impression that once you identify a manuscript as being relatively late, and you can see that it more or less uh, contains the Syrian or the Byzantine text, you can pretty much dismiss it. Well, that's the majority of manuscripts. And Scribner was very bothered about, you know, going, uh, doing that sort of thing. Uh, his approach was, how, how can you just take uh, hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts, and now we know there are thousands, and simply set them aside and not examine them and not give them any weight? You cannot do that. And so he was very reticent to, to simply say, well, the Byzantine text is a bad text, so we don't pay too much attention to it. Uh, that's a, an important difference between the two of them. Burgle would have said the Byzantine text, or what he called the traditional text, is the right text. In fact, it is the inerrant form of the text. This is what God has preserved. Scrivener simply said, the Byzantine or the traditional text is a very important witness to the original text and needs to be taken seriously. Whereas Hort said, the Byzantine text is a very inferior witness and you don't pay too much attention to it. He did pay attention to it, but not a whole lot of it. See. But the other thing that distinguishes these two folks is that um, whereas Bergen you know, you could almost see the flames out of his mouth um, when, uh, when he had to say anything about Hort. Scrivener uh, understood the, um, the significance of Hort's work. In fact, he made this comment with regard to, to that introduction that I have been um, referring to. He says, it is a treatise of Hort's introduction. It is a treatise whose merits may be frankly acknowledged by persons the least disposed to accept his arguments. So that he, um, by saying that, he's saying, you know, I am not all that crazy about his conclusions. But, he says, never was a cause, good or bad in itself, set off with higher ability and persuasive power. What Scrivener is saying is when you read, and you read carefully and, and uh, thoughtfully, because uh, Hort writes in a very compact style, and you've got to really you know, uh, do it slowly and, and try to understand how the argument is, is progressing, but he does it clearly. When you do that, you see, you, you, you realize that there's a certain cogency and persuasion about the, the whole course of the argument that, that needs to be appreciated. And I think it, it is that which uh, had a, a very significant effect on other scholars. There was also a rather interesting um, support given to uh, the work of Hort. It was sort of... Um, I don't think anybody set out to do this, but there was a scholar at the time named uh, Bernhard Weiss. Bernhard Weiss, his son Johannes Weiss is also important for other reasons. But uh, in the last uh, quarter of the 19th century, Weiss was one of the most highly regarded New Testament exegetes of his day, and he was quite conservative in his approach, I mean, his, his theological um, approach was fairly conservative. But he was highly regarded by people of, uh, of a variety of uh, theological persuasions. For a number of years, he had been involved in uh, the writing of commentaries that became uh, 
you know, very, very uh, uh, popular and influential. And uh, what he decided to do was to go through the Greek New Testament, look at the places where there were uh, textual variations, and uh, he would make use of Tischendorf's edition and so on to, to get his information. And then he would try to come to a conclusion based on exegetical grounds. And when he was finished, his text looked remarkably like Hort's text. Now, see, for many people, this was a, uh, a rather significant uh, factor. Hort went at his work, really, on the basis of the high regard that he gave to Codex Vaticanus and Codex uh, Sinaiticus, and then, in a secondary way, to the Alexandrian stream. Uh, Hort's work uh, depended primarily on the way in which he used his, his genealogical method, which meant, in the final analysis, what it meant is that he regarded Codex B and Codex Aleph, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, as this neutral text, as, as providing the, the closest approximation to the original. And uh, he followed those manuscripts quite consistently, not always, but quite consistently. On, uh, so, so his work was based on documentary evidence, primarily. Weiss goes at it exegetically, primarily. And he comes to very similar conclusions. And in particular, you see, the, the whole pattern of the text, which uh, Hort and Weiss agreed on, was clearly distinct from the pattern of the Textus Receptus. And by a pattern, I mean that you have a whole series of readings, which you could say are characteristic of the Byzantine text which were rejected by both Hort and Weiss on different grounds. Now, yeah. Um, how did you read pillars on the different types? So, yeah, we can come back to that because it takes us to a different issue. Uh, but let me just um, uh, try to respond very briefly, and we, and we can return to this question. Um, if you are... Um, well, let's talk about some document that has nothing to do with the Bible. Let's suppose that you're just a philosopher and you're interested in Aristotle's um, philosophical teachings and you have a variation in the manuscripts and you want to know what Aristotle you know, really said. Uh, you can either be careless about it and say, well, it doesn't matter, or you can be very concerned about these things and try to be as accurate as you possibly can. Uh, again, if you're a historian and you're reading Thucydides or, or Livy or any of these, and, and there are variations in the manuscripts, and you want to be able to uh, do your work as responsibly as possible, you want to base that on what Thucydides really said and not what some scribe later may have uh, messed up with. Now, when you're dealing... so and, and there are a lot of people out there who don't believe that the Bible is God's Word necessarily, and yet do this incredibly detailed, frustrating, exhausting work because as scholars they, they want to do the best job they can. Uh, now, if we believe that the Bible is more than just an ancient document, uh, it, it may still be true that because you use the Texas Receptus rather than the Westcott and Hort text or whatever, uh, you still have you know, the, the true message of salvation there. But I think most Christians, you know, they go to Romans 5.1 and they find that you can, that's either let us have faith with God or we have faith with God. And I think most Christians want to know, you know, what did Paul really say here? Um, there are a number of other examples, some more or less interesting than others. Uh, the one that you're going to be working on for this paper is from Matthew 24. Uh, I'll tell you more about that. But uh, in Matthew 24, where uh, Jesus says, no one knows the hour, not even the angels, nor the sun. And so manuscripts don't have the words, nor the sun. Uh, now again, what, 
what decision you make there probably will not uh, change your understanding of, uh, of nature of Christ or things like omniscience, but it will certainly help to refine it and, and uh, nuance it. And then when you're, you try to understand the passage, you want to make sure that you're understanding what the original author said and not what some scribe later said. Yeah. That the which text? The Byzantine, yes. Uh-huh. It's very important, right? Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, yeah. Tischendorf also valued Sinaiticus. Sinaiticus was Tischendorf's favorite manuscript. Hortz, you know, it was Aleph. Uh, whereas B, or Vaticanus, was Hort's favorite manuscript. And, um, but especially, you see, what, uh, what was very important to Hort was that when these two agreed over against some other uh, manuscripts or groups of manuscripts, he almost always followed the lead of these two manuscripts. Now, on the lecture notes, um, the next item there has to do with the papyrological discoveries. We've talked about this in a variety of, from a variety of angles. The first, when we're dealing with the character of the language of the New Testament, then when we're talking about important manuscripts and so on. But uh, let me um, help you appreciate that as a result of some of these discoveries, uh, there were a number of important uh, modifications that had to be made uh, to Hort's theory. Now, one thing that uh, you know becomes fairly obvious to most people, yeah. Everybody's like everybody's method. It's just that he was he was highly regarded as a man with with a lot of good common sense. Yeah. Pardon? Vice. Yes. Uh, yeah, again, I think it's uh, important to appreciate that people of different theological persuasions, if you will, with, with different ideas and so on, uh, regard advice very highly as a, as a fair man, as a man who um, showed uh, sobriety of judgment, uh, that his, his way of arguing you know, made a lot of sense to people. And so when he went at it in, uh, from that perspective, as distinct from, from weighing manuscripts, it just provided uh, an additional factor. Yeah. Um, Paparola, uh, the, um, with discovery of the papyri, there are certain modifications. And, um, oh, the business about uh, the neutral text. It, it became quite apparent to most people that um, the, the very fact that Hort should call the text found in, in these two a neutral text was cause for suspicion. <laughs> uh, because obviously no manuscript is neutral. Uh, I mean, that's almost uh, like saying it's the autograph. Well, of course, Hort wouldn't have claimed that. Uh, but uh, people became suspicious about the way in, in which uh, Hort had handled that. And um, I think um, most people today would say, look, B and Aleph are also uh, witnesses to the Alexandrian family, to the Alexandrian type, although granted they're particularly good members of that family. And many people, many scholars would actually uh, refer to, uh, to this text as proto-Alexandrian, proto-Alexandrian, to distinguish it from the later, uh, from some of the manuscripts that are a little later, like Codex Ephraimi and so on, or the Coptic translations. Uh, and those are Alexandrian in the more general sense. But, um, to, to think of B and Aleph as, as a completely different, well, not completely, but, but largely different text that's neutral, something like that, is not a good idea. So that was a change, if you will, in Hort's um, 
in the way in which Hort's uh, views were understood, people stopped talking about the neutral text, although they continued to, to acknowledge that these two manuscripts uh, presented a, a very, very reliable text. From another uh, angle, you might say that the papyrological discoveries did tend, in general, in general, they did tend to support Hort's theories. In particular, when, um, to give you two important examples, Papyrus 46, remember, has the Pauline letters, and Papyrus 75, which has Luke and John, here you have manuscripts that are at least a century older than these two. People who opposed Hort, people like Dean Bergen, for example, he would have argued that the text in these manuscripts was invented in the fourth century. You know, somebody in Alexandria uh, decided to, to, to cut things and make it smaller and so on and so forth, and that it was a recension, that is a new revision uh, that took place in Alexandria at the end of the, th of the third, beginning of the fourth century. But now, here are these two manuscripts going back to the beginning of the third century, and the text in these manuscripts is basically of the same pattern as the text in these. So that you would also call those proto-Alexandrian in some sense. And that was a tremendous boost to the basic reliability of Hort's theory. At least it put to rest this other argument that, that the text of these two manuscripts was invented in the fourth century. Obviously, that could not be true anymore. However, and this, is, uh, this happens whenever you have a, sig a significant uh, discovery, it tends to support uh, theories from one angle, but to create new problems. And the papyri have created a host of new problems because the text in these manuscripts is certainly not identical to these. And you have what appears from our perspective now, it appears to be a mixture of readings. And all of the new data that has accumulated for the uh, third century and the end of the second century now doesn't quite fit uh, the, this nicely worked out theory that Hort had. And scholars have for a very long time been aware of the fact that you need to revise you know, your history of, of, of the transmission of the text. And no one, frankly, has come up with, a, with an alternate theory that is alternate to Hort's theory that adequately accounts for all the facts and that, or most of them, and that most scholars would be happy with. So a New Testament scholarship is as something, as something of a transition. I'll say more about that in just a minute. Um, another feature of uh, Hort's theory that I might uh, mention here is some skepticism about Hort's theory regarding the development of the Byzantine text. Uh, what Hort did was to make use of a particular comment that had been made by Jerome back in uh, you know, late 4th, early 5th century, in which um, it was suggested that a man by the name of Lucian may have been responsible for the revision that came to be known as the Syrian or Byzantine text. Well, there's no direct historical information about that. It's a nice theory. And um, uh, you need to be aware of the fact that although Hort said you know, quite a bit about that, uh, many scholars today are very hesitant to uh, accept that particular aspect of, um, of Hort's understanding of the history of the text. If you go to the next item in the lecture notes, uh, Streeter's local text, this is an interesting development of, um, of Hort's theories. And uh, what Streeter did at the beginning of, uh, of this century was to try to refine 
what Hort had done. And um, you see how this term local texts focuses specifically on trying to identify a geographical location for the various uh, textual streams, which he, he felt he could identify more than the, than the ones that uh, uh, Hort had identified. And so, if you go to, in Metzger's uh, text, to page 171, here's another schema. This one is a little more complicated. And uh, you see at the beginning, at the top, that there is a basic threefold uh, separation of the textual transmission, Alexandrian, Eastern, and Western. But then he further subdivides each of these. The Alexandrian has three strands, uh, the one of, you know, Atticanus Placinaticus, maybe also the Sahidic uh, dialect of Coptic. Then there's a strand of uh, C, 33, Bohairic, and so on. And then another strand that may have been used in the development of the Byzantine text. In the Eastern, he identifies a Caesarean and an Antiochene strand. In the Western, he identifies an African and an Italian uh, Gallic uh, strand. Uh, that's getting pretty uh, specific. And, uh, you know, not too many people bought this in, in totality. But Streeter was a um, really quite a wonderful um, writer. He uh, produced a book called The Four Gospels, A Study in Origins, uh, which the first part deals with textual criticism. The second part deals with source criticism, the question about the literary connections between the Gospels. And when you read, uh, if, if you have an interest in this whole field, uh, Streeter's uh, book uh, and what he has to say about textual criticism is very, very uh, enlightening. He writes with a wonderful style, and even though he's talking about things that are rather complicated, he makes them very clear. And um, his, uh, this refinement was a rather significant contribution because it made people a bit more aware about certain kinds of connections among the manuscripts that could be further used in evaluating uh, variant readings. Well, um, this next item, eclecticism, that is a way of referring or describing what uh, most scholars today do when uh, they practice textual criticism. Let me try to explain what, um, what that means. You know the word eclectic, where, where you pick up from different parts and, and, and try to, uh, to combine different approaches. If you look at Hort, his approach is what many people would call a documentary approach, a documentary approach. You remember what I said last time that, and this is kind of a, uh, uh, a rather foundational principle in Hort's method, that knowledge of documents must precede a final decision about readings, a final judgment about readings. He uh, gave so much weight to the genealogical method as well as to his relative evaluation of the manuscripts that he allowed that factor to be the predominant one. So when he looks at a specific problem, oh, of course, he talks about exegetical questions and so on. In fact, if you look at the appendix in the introductory volume and see the way in which he discusses individual readings, you can see that he's very sensitive to that sort of thing. But ultimately, what usually sways him is whether a reading is found in the good documents or not. That's why I'm calling this a documentary approach. Now, at the other extreme, and incidentally, somebody who, who takes the Textus Receptus as the right text, you could also put him in this, even though it's exactly, the conclusions are very different from Hort's. Uh, it, you know, that, that kind of individual also belongs in this 
uh, extreme because he doesn't pay too much attention evaluating individual readings. He simply asks, you know, where do you find this reading? If it's in text receptors, I'll take it. See. <clears throat> but at the other extreme, uh, there's some, something that, um, um, what's the term some people use? Rational? No. Anyway, let's call it uh, extreme <laughs> eclecticism. These are people, all two of them, because <laughs> there are two names uh, that are usually associated with this. Uh, a gentleman named Kilpatrick, who uh, died a few years ago, and uh, one of his uh, disciples, um, uh, Keith Elliott, who was the editor of, uh, well, I'll tell you what the editor of, he was of uh, later. But um, these people would say, I don't care what the, where the variants are found. I don't care what documents are found. Just give me as many variants as you can find anywhere. And then all I do is basically internal evidence of readings on each of them. See, that's, that's the other extreme. Most people today, most scholars today, are in fact eclectics, but moderately so. In other words, uh, they combine both of these approaches. Um, they do pay attention to what manuscripts the readings are found, but they do not uh, emphasize that aspect to an extreme, and they are willing, they're more willing to accept variants found in a variety of sources and witnesses than Horde might have been. So that's what eclecticism uh, refers to it, it's another way of saying that most scholars today, although they more or less build on Hort's method, they have also moved somewhat away from it. 